Columbia University to the School of Library Service and to the second Malkin Lecture. The Malkin Lecture was established last year and the first Malkin Lecture was given on December 16, 1985 by Michael Winslet who is here just back from Oxford for this occasion. It is a part of a variety of programs dealing with the history of the book and related subjects of the School of Library Service, substantially supported by the Friends of the Book Arts Press, and I'm delighted to see so many Friends of the Book Arts Press in the audience this evening. There is an exhibition of the 10 years of the first 10 years of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, which is on the third floor of this building. So if any of you want to wander back to the reception after this lecture by way of the third floor, you can take a quick look at uh, the exhibition down on three on either side of the circulation desk. One of the items featured in the exhibition is the first occasional publication of the Friends of the Book Arts Press in recent years. The use of the bookbinding literature by Mr. Breslau, who was also here this evening. And you'll also see that one of the most prominent donors of materials for teaching purposes to the Book Arts Press is Bernard Rosenthal, the celebrated San Francisco antiquarian book dealer, and some of the dogs that he has given us over the years are down on display uh, for you to see. When I asked Mr. Rosenthal to deliver this lecture last year at this time, his written response began damn you. <laughs> it was, he said, his determination to accept no further lecture engagements. He accepted this one, however, and all of us are very glad indeed that he did. We celebrate then two Malcolm lectures tonight, both the first and the second, because I have to inform you that from Steinauer Press this morning arrived published copies of the first Malcolm lecture, and there are copies for all who wish uh, with our compliments at the reception afterwards. It only remains then to welcome to this podium, no stranger to it, Mr. Bernard M. Rosenthal, speaking as I thought on the immigration of German and Austrian booksellers in the 1930s into the United States with its impact on the antiquarian book trade here, but speaking instead on whatever he pleases, and I'm sure <laughs> that it will be worth listening to on those or indeed any other ground. Mr. Bernard Rosenthal. Thank you, Barry. Uh, needless to say, I'm honored to have been summoned all the way from San Francisco to give this lecture. You can't say no to Barry Belgium. And I dedicate this lecture with respect and affection 
to the memory of my friend Saul Malkin. I was allowed to choose my own topics, and when I began researching some of my ideas, I was alarmed to see confirmed something that I had suspected all along, namely that everything I could think of has already been said at least three times, and by people far better qualified than I am in the century and a half between Dibdin and Rothenberg. For this lecture, I simply have to find something new and different, and that something would not only have to meet the rigorous standards of our no-nonsense academic host, Terry Bellinger, no cute anecdotes for him, but it would also have to be a fitting memorial to Saul Malkin, the foremost chronicler of the antiquarian book trade in America in its formative years, a man without whose devotion and involvement our world would have been far, far duller and on occasion far less obstreperous. Those of us whose careers, especially these early careers, coincided with Saul's active years as editor of the AD, owe him an immense debt of gratitude. So at first I panicked, but then came sudden enlightenment. I found the proper topic. It's not really bibliography, but we can call it para-bibliography, a term I will immediately have copyrighted, or as a librarian friend of mine likes to call it, light bibliography. <laughs> you know, something uh, in the style of a recently born-again periodical called Bibliography Newsletter which has very little bibliography in it. <laughs> <laughs> this something which will be my topic tonight was the exodus of the German and Austrian booksellers which followed the rise of Nazism in Europe. And since by far the largest number of these booksellers and booksellers-to-be settled in the United States, it is here that their impact has been most profound. Yet their story as a whole has not been told. I say as a whole because there have been a number of individual biographical sketches published here and there, some obituaries too, alas, and most members in this audience are familiar with a rather bulky autobiographical volume entitled A Rare Book Saga. Let me tell you quickly how I went about gathering my information, other than that which was available from published sources. I am myself the son of one of these emigre booksellers, Erwin Rosenthal, so I lived quite a bit of the story firsthand. And through my father, and later on on my own, I have personally met practically all the dealers involved in the story. I drew up a questionnaire with a dozen or so pertinent and several impertinent questions, and I sent it to all the persons or their descendants or friends who were on my list. And I accompanied this with a request that any names I should have forgotten should be called to my attention. The response was a male advertiser's impossible dream, about 90%. And even more gratifying was the fact that not a single one of my correspondents 
accused me of running a covert operation designed to elicit all their business secrets under the camouflage of preparing a lecture. As is inevitable when one starts on a project of this sort, original definitions proved inadequate. Booksellers, like the antiquarian books they deal with, cannot be neatly categorized, and no matter how hard you try, it's impossible to fit them all into a rigid statistical group. You'll always find at least one or two who don't fit. And this is reflected, by the way, in the announcement and in what Perry just said about the title of my lecture. For example, I wanted to entitle this talk, The Jewish Refugee Booksellers from Germany and Austria, etc., etc., something to that effect. But Mr. Zalov and Mr. Goldschmidt spoiled that one for me. Zalov, because he's not Jewish, but his credentials are okay. He married a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> and, and Goldschmidt, because he was born in Brussels. <laughs> so that took care of the original title. And the final title says continental, and it's also non-denominational. <laughs> then I thought I would include only those persons who were already active as booksellers in Europe before coming here. And I wanted them all to be here before Pearl Harbor, December 1941. But when the replies started coming in, I found that some of my most respected and successful colleagues had not been booksellers in Europe, in their native countries. And I found that others wanted to come to the US, but didn't make it until after the war. And others still, who even though they had come before World War II, had a number of other occupations before they were able to realize their dream of becoming booksellers. So I changed the date. And instead of 1941, I picked 1948 as the cutoff year. There were several reasons for this, one of them being that in 1949, I decided to become a bookseller, and I had sworn to stay away from autobiography. In the course of this talk, however, there will be a few lapses you have to forgive me. So, yes, the title on the poster and the title on the invitation are all wrong. In its final form, which it received long after the deadline for printing had passed, it reads, The Gentle Invasion, Continental Emigre Booksellers of the 30s and 40s, and their incomes, etc. There were also borderline cases. Should I include dealers who specialize in prints and drawings? Well, I included only those who, in addition to prints and drawings, also had illustrated books. That, unfortunately, forced me to exclude Richard Pinzer of Stuttgart, who died about two years ago, aged almost 100. On first meeting him, one would hardly suspect that this somewhat uncouth and outspoken man, with an almost comically heavy Schwedish accent, was perhaps the greatest and most sensitive expert in his field. He never issued a catalog, he never had a shop. He will probably soon be forgotten. Knowing the opinion he held of most collectors, museum curators, curators, and colleagues, I'm sure he wouldn't mind. <laughs> it's also quite clear to me that a half dozen or so persons escaped my dragnet, but I'm hopeful that as a result of this talk, more information will be forthcoming. I will not stand here this evening and read you off the capsule biographies with 
names and dates of these dealers tempting and easy as this may be. Rather, I will attempt to tell you in general terms the history of their arrival and the effect they had on the world of rare books in this country. Let me first give you a first, uh, a first a bit of historical background. I'm glad to see so many younger people here who don't remember it, and that's just as well. Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist Party came to power in Germany in early 1933. The party's doctrine included virulent anti-Semitism, not just as a sideline, but as one of the central tenets of its platform. The first official manifestation came barely a month after Hitler took power, when a boycott the Jews day was proclaimed. And I still remember, when I was a little boy that day, when by order of the new Nazi rulers, two huge swastika banners were draped over the facade of my grandfather, Jacques Rosenthal's patrician house in Munich. And the crudely lettered word, Jude, Jude, was painted near the entrance of the bookstore, where a brown shirt was stationed. It was precisely during this period, incidentally, that Sotheby's had arranged to exhibit a selection of Chester Beatty's manuscripts at Jacques Rosenthal's. Not exactly a propitious time for this sort of thing, but I understand that they went well anyway. It should be recorded that a number of people who couldn't care less about manuscripts entered the shop on that day simply to shake hands, to express shock, amazement, and shame. They were from that other Germany, which never really died entirely. And on the subject of that other Germany, it should also be recorded that while some booksellers undoubtedly took advantage of and profited from the distress of their Jewish colleagues or partners or employers, and some actually hastened their ruin, a number of others gave whatever help they could, but most could only stand helplessly by. By 1935, the war against the Jews was codified in Nuremberg with the passage of legislation which prohibited the Jews from holding office, teaching in schools or universities, practicing law, marrying or even employing Gentiles, and in general depriving them all of their civil rights. German troops marched into Austria in 1938, the country became part of Germany, and a few days later, the Nuremberg laws were applied there too. The exodus, only a trickle until then, began in earnest. And yet in retrospect, it is easy to ask what took the German Jews so long to realize the true extent of the danger. The explanation is simple. Immigration, even under the best of circumstances, is an unnatural and wrenching experience, a solution of last resort. The choice of immigration is even more difficult when it involves breaking not only economic and social ties, but also the severing of a deep cultural attachment and identification of the kind most of the German Jews felt for their country. It was a country, after all, in which, since Moses Mendelssohn, there had developed a political and social climate which gave the Jews unprecedented opportunities for particip participating in and contributing to the country's intellectual, artistic, scientific, professional, and commercial life. The Jews fought in Germany's wars, 
had proudly wore the iron crosses they had won for bravery, and which, they thought, would render them immune for persecution. All were loyal Germans. Some were outright vocal nationalists. The German booksellers belonged to this sophisticated, emancipated, and loyal class. Another factor, without exception, the people who came here were past the age of easy adaptability. The oldest was Emil Hirsch, 72. The youngest was Lucien Goldschmidt, 25. Most others were well in their 30s or older. Only two had been to this country before. To this must be added the fact that the Nazi laws were particularly fiendish in that on the one hand, they made a normal existence impossible and at the same time, they made immigration almost equally difficult. After 1936, you couldn't emigrate unless you surrendered your entire property and paid a ruinous immigration tax. To sum it all up, I don't know how many of you have read the introduction to the new SPP. I hope most of you have in this audience. On page seven of the introduction, Kitty Panzer explains the order in which the location of copies is arranged. First the English library, then after a semicolon, the American one. The way she puts it is in the following immortal sentence, quote, in the entry, the Atlantic Ocean is represented by a semicolon. <laughs> I hope she has shown you that it was far more than a semicolon then. The United States, and that's a truism, is a land that has always profited from and has been nourished by immigration. It's interesting to note, however, that there seem to have been only two waves of what you might call intellectual immigration to this country. The first one in the 1840s when the political refugees from Europe came here seeking refuge and asylum, Karl Schurz being, of course, their most famous exponent, but closer to our world, there was um, Hermann Ernst Ludewig, the bibliographer who was a subject, subject of Michael Winship's lecture here last year. The second wave occurred almost a century later when the persecution of the Jews in Europe brought to these shores a large number of highly educated people from mostly Germany, Austria, and Italy. The antiquarian booksellers who made, to, who made it to these shores were part of this much larger intellectual invasion of academics, artists, philosophers, scientists, doctors, and other professionals. His arrival profoundly affected the history and culture of this country. Tiny as this band of refugees and booksellers may be in the larger scheme of things, we're talking about less than 30 people, it perfectly mirrors the larger picture. By 1939, Germany and Austria had lost a large and vital part of their established internationally active and prominent antiquarian booksellers. We must remember here that not all the Jewish booksellers managed to leave the country, and also that some firms continued to exist after their owners had been forced to um, to, to turn them over to non-Jewish ownership, a forced liquidation called Aryanization. Let me mention a few examples. Frankfurt lost 
Judith Baer and Heinrich Eisenmann. Berlin lost Martin Breslauer, Paul Gottschalk, Paul Graupe, and Otto Haas. Julie Tete, Emil Hirsch, and the various Rosenthal's left Munich. Vienna lost Otto Ranschburg and William Schaaf, who were the soul of the firm of Ilhofer and Ranschburg. If you've missed a couple of famous names on this list, uh, that's because the people in question didn't become famous until after their arrival in this country. Not everyone, by the way, came to the United States. They went to Scandinavia, France, Holland, Switzerland, England, Latin America, China, and Canada. The largest number, I would say about 60%, based on my response, came to the United States, most of them settling in the New York area. The next largest contingent, about 20 or 22%, ended up in England. It may be useful to draw a few comparisons here. In England, there already existed a substantial, world-renowned antiquarian book trade with its own long history and tradition, and with its own established trade organization, the ABA. The newcomers seem to have blended rather easily into the existing professional landscape, and they settled comfortably without really making waves among colleagues whom they had known for many, many years. Things were quite different in America. For one thing, the people who went to England were already established booksellers or sons of booksellers who fully intended to carry on the business of their fathers. But the refugees or who came to, but of the refugees who came to the United States, more than a third decided to become booksellers after they arrived here. I was very astonished by that. And so we must really speak of two distinct groups, the pros and the pros-to-be. Whatever the distinctions, whatever the differences, they all had many things in common. With a single exception, as we have seen, all were Jewish. Without exception, they emigrated because they had to and not because they wanted to. The educational level was exceptionally high. Most had at least the abitur, a high school degree roughly equivalent to two years of college, and in the humanities in those days, I dare say it was closer to a bachelor's degree. More than a third had PhDs. It is amusing, by the way, to see a rather spectacular confirmation of the old saying that a thorough apprenticeship in the trade is easily the equivalent of a formal education. One of the three who never got as far as the abitur was Emil Offenbacher, surely to be counted among the most scholarly, erudite, and learned members of the trade. These immigrants had another common trait. None, I think, can claim to have been part of any poor, huddled masses. And I have good reason to believe, although I assure you this was not part of my questionnaire, I have reason to believe that none of them arrived exactly Führerschaft. Their backgrounds, both cultural and economic, were definitely middle or upper middle class. The antiquarian book world 
as it existed in the United States at the time was, as far as I could piece it together, far different from the scene which these refugee booksellers had just fled. Even though, I had, as I noted with some astonishment, a number of these of this country's establishment booksellers had themselves been immigrants, albeit voluntary ones. Gabriel Wales from Hungary, Charles Brand from Russia, Fred Rosenstock from Austria, Charles Hartmann, Weil, Fessler, Harry Lukwitz from Germany, and Arthur Swan from England. He was head of the Carcanet Gallery's book department for decades. The only thing this world here seems to have had in common with Europe was that all the major international dealers were concentrated in one large metropolitan area, New York. So it's not surprising that practically all the newcomers came to this city. New York, by the way, also was a very cheap city to live in at the time. This is hard for you to believe, but rent on Madison Avenue was very, very cheap. Not only was it a far different world, even the term antiquarian bookseller was not in general use here. Dealers in rare books, or in old and rare books, was a term then commonly used, except that Richard Wormser single-handedly coined, as in his inimitable tongue-in-cheek manner, stuck to the designation uncommon rare books. There was no national or even local or association that wasn't founded until 1949, and that's another reason, more serious reason, for my cutoff date. It was only then when this organization took the name of Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, comma, Inc., that the term Antiquarian Bookseller was, so to speak, codified. So there's no question that the rare book world here was more unstructured and more freewheeling than in Europe, in the Europe which these newcomers had left behind, and there was, of course, infinitely more elbow room here. Also, let's not forget that those who went to England soon had to put up with some inconveniences, such as bombs falling on them, internment as enemy aliens, a chapter little known, but every bit as shameful, if not more so, than our internment of the Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor in California, or being drafted into the British Army. In the U.S., there were similar inconveniences after 1941, but at least we didn't have the bombs. The draft, or work related to the war effort, interrupted the newly begun careers of a high percentage of my respondents. The already established Continental booksellers found in the New York area colleagues and clients with whom they had been doing business for years, even decades, while the soon-to-be booksellers found themselves in a climate which was favorable to the establishment of small, independent, family-style enterprises. The country was just barely recovering from the Depression, jobs were extremely hard to get, and the job prospects for freshly minted PhDs with heavy accents were very poor. <laughs> the first of the new arrivals was precisely the first of the new arrivals were precisely in this class of not yet but soon to be booksellers, Marianne and Bill Zalok in December 1936. But they didn't become booksellers until 1939. The first real bookseller to open a shop here was Lucien Goldschmidt. But Lucien wasn't quite on his own at the time. He had been working at the firm of Pierre Beres in Paris for several years 
and in 1977 came to New York to open a branch. So who then was the first one to open a shop here all on his own? It was Walter Schatzky in December 1937, and I think we couldn't wish for a more wonderful father. The last pre-Pearl Harbor arrival was my father in 1941, and the last one to make it before my deadline of 1948 was Ernest Gottlieb of Los Angeles, who in that year decided to fulfill his dream of becoming an antiquarian bookseller. In this 12-year period, period, between 1936 and 1948, about 23 firms were established in this country. That's probably more than 10% of the original membership of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association. So it's quite obvious that the emigre booksellers changed the trade by sheer numbers. In the New York City area, I would guess that they increased the number of antiquarian bookshops by easily over 20%, probably much more. But the most lasting influence of these booksellers is not their sheer number. It's their expertise, their craftsmanship, and what, what, what one might call their bibliographical consciousness, which all of them brought to their trade. It's not that this sort of approach had been unknown here, not at all. But by and large, I have the impression that with some obvious exceptions, Lathrop Harper, Richard Wormser immediately come to mind, the antiquarian book business was a more provincial, relaxed, not to say happy-go-lucky affair here, and that the reference libraries left behind by the continental immigrants outweighed those of their American counterparts by 10 to 1. Yet, one need not go quite so far as to agree with the jaundiced assessment of Herbert Reichmann. When this recent arrival from Vienna interviewed a shy, eager young woman who had applied for the job of secretary, her name, Leona Rotzenberg, he noticed with a great deal of surprise that she knew something about books. How amazing, he said, that you should know anything about books. Nobody in America really does. But the newcomers brought with them as we have seen, an enviable baggage of humanistic education and learning, and those who didn't have a great deal of learning had at least a great deal of respect for it. Their cataloging methods profoundly influenced the trade here, and they parallel, I think, once more the microcosm, a kind of Teutonization of scholarship, which the refugee academics brought to this country's universities. Those who had been booksellers in Europe had already applied this erudition, just look at their catalogs, and now they brought this, these skills to the trade in the United States. Not only skills, but also continental books, which had received relatively scant attention in this country. H.P. Krauss gives some rather amusing descriptions of going to auctions in New York where the only buyers of wonderful early continental books were he and his refugee colleagues, a kind of newly formed and extremely effective Austro-German mafia. <laughs> Those
booksellers after their arrival here were ideally suited to fit into this scholarly framework, I give you an amazing statistic of these eight, all had a PhD or its equivalent, counting wives actively engaged in the business with their husbands, nine out of 10. And you'd think that people with PhDs would have a little more sense than to go into the book business. <laughs> but we shall come back to these PhDs a little later. Let me talk first about what I call the real booksellers. I said that some didn't only bring expertise, but also books. How, you will ask, did anyone manage to bring books to this country given the harsh immigration laws? Well, some of them had seen the handwriting on the wall early enough and emigrated before the laws were fully applied. Others managed to save part of their stock by enlisting the help of foreign colleagues and clients. They made so-called sales or unapproval shipments, which were nullified as soon as the bookseller followed in person. Other firms had branches abroad. The booksellers who shipped their most valuable books out of Munich had additional help <coughs> from an unlikely source. The person appointed by the Nazi government to process and oversee applications of exports and to prevent any hanky-panky was Mr. Karl, co-founder of the auction house of Karl and Faber, now Harping and Karl. Karl was a member of the Nazi party from its earliest beginnings, but he remained loyal to his colleagues and tried to help as much as he could. He closed both eyes and turned the other way. Those booksellers who were unable to bring their books with them received help from their colleagues who would give them books on general consignment terms. A striking but by no means unique example was that of Thomas Heller who left Vienna for Paris and then crossed over to England, where he was promptly interned as an enemy agent. Upon his release, he went to see his colleague Clifford Lang. And at the latter's suggestion, he steeped himself in the study of history of science, a field in which he was later to become one of the leading specialists. He finally arrived in New York in 1943, all but destitute, his only asset being, in the words of my informant, his fiancée who awaited him on the dock, an unusually comprehensive knowledge of historical science and medicine, and a trunk full of books on consignment from magsellers. Among the people supported by Lethal Harper was Otto Ranschburg, and years later, this same Otto was to become director of the firm and managed under very trying circumstances to revitalize it. So here you have the case of an Austrian immigrant heading one of the country's foremost establishment firms. Others joined forces and pooled resources, generally meager. Helmut Wallach and Walter Schatzky, for instance, shared the same uh, premises in the early days. Schatz and Kraus frequently pooled their not-so-meager resources and quickly became a formidable team. Emil Offenbacher, who had left Germany in 1934 and had established himself in Paris as Emil Offenbacher, or probably Emil Offenbacher, uh, Livres Anciens, 
managed to get out just ahead of the German army, and in 1941, lo and behold, it was Amy Offenbacher Olden Rare Books on Madison Avenue, in association with another recent arrival, Erwin Rosenthal. Ernest Dawson in Los Angeles has been offers of employment, and in at least one case that I know of, he has by signing an affidavit. No mean thing to do at the time. European connections were maintained even during the war. Books could still, after all, be shipped from and to England and Switzerland, and even from and to China. Yet no one, I think, ever equaled the feat of Mr. William Sharp, who, from New York, managed to sell a Claude Lorrain drawing to the Musée du Louvre in Paris while it was under German occupation. Now there is a bookseller. <laughs> it is precisely this continental connection which quickly placed these booksellers into the more sophisticated strata of the trade here, and soon many of them were part of what you might call the big league even though none of them, of course, could match the great books, the flamboyant style, and the awesome power of the legendary Dr. Rosenbach. But since then, one of the boys made it. I think, by the way, that while the newcomers quickly established close ties with the local trade, they were rather awed by Rosenbach, and yet those enough who had enough chutzpah and summoned the courage to go and see him were very cordially received. And they marveled at the low prices of some of the doctor's continental books. Allow me to quote from Wolf and Fleming's biography of Rosenbach. Dealers such as the Austrian refugee H.B. Kraus found the Rosenbach shelves a mine, and as the need presented itself, carried off a nugget now and then." Unquote. Uh, one doesn't find all that many nuggets on that Austrian refugee train nowadays. <laughs> the continental connection, obviously greatly reduced during the war, was quickly reestablished once the war was over, and a number of these newly minted American booksellers lost no time in going back to Europe on buying expeditions. But it's interesting to note that none of them returned to set up shop. I might add here that after the war, there was relatively little rancor between the immigrants and the few German colleagues who had survived. It took many years for the German book trade to recover from the combined bloodletting of emigration, Nazism, war, and destruction. The vacuum has been filled by a vigorous new generation of booksellers and auctioneers, and after a very brief initial period of hesitation, there now exists a strong professional camaraderie between the Germans and their German-speaking American colleagues. The latter, as a matter of fact, are received with respect, and on the part of the younger German dealers, with something akin to curiosity and awe as representatives of another, and to them, thank God, incomprehensible age. <coughs> After 1945, it also became possible for a few who had tried unsuccessfully to come here earlier to finally make it. 
1946 came Ludwig Gottschalk, who had hidden in Holland and managed to save a considerable number of books for an uncle of his, Paul Gottschalk, who had been here since, since before the war. And in 1947 arrived Kurt Schwartz, who has the honor of having taken the most circuitous route. He left Vienna in 1938, first went to Paris, then to London, and not wishing to face the uncertain prospect of internment as an enemy alien. This thing keeps popping up all the time, doesn't it? He accepted an appointment as librarian of the Royal Asiatic Society in Shanghai. When the Japanese occupiers closed down the society, Kurt and a fellow German refugee from a fellow refugee from Germany, Heinz Heinemann, what did they do? They started a Western art gallery bookshop, which catered mainly to the many foreigners stranded in Shanghai. In 1947, Kurt Schwartz finally made it to the U.S. and settled in Los Angeles, one of the very few who settled on the West Coast. And now, what about the soon-to-be booksellers? What made them enter the trade? Well, one of them had been an avid collector of books on chess. His doctor of jurisprudence was of no use to him, so he began buying and selling chess books. He knew Russian, like any self-respecting chess freak, I suppose, and so he started dabbling and later dealing on a large scale in Russian periodicals. That was Albrecht Pushkin. Herbert Reichner had been a publisher in Vienna, among his many distinguished publications had been the Philobiblon, a sort of continental forerunner of our book collector. So when he had to choose a new career here in New York, antiquarian bookselling offered him the opportunity of, conti of continuing to live in a world which was thoroughly familiar to him. The Herr und Frau Doctor couple, they Burnett, art historian, and Zalok, medievalist, had worked for publishers, but soon decided to put their educational background and perhaps unsuspected entrepreneurial skills into the book trade, to which they were attracted, like most of us, because it offers the opportunity of being independent, at least as we all thought when we began. Between them, they published almost 700 catalogs up to now. Others like Mr. Heinemann and Mr. Fiebig, an engineer and a statistician respectively, found that their knowledge of languages applied to the book trade came in handier than their degrees, and they used their cosmopolitan and linguistic backgrounds to supply things like Arabic translations of Freud or street guides of Budapest. Ernst Gottlieb in Los Angeles had been, among other things, publisher of now much sought-after editions of German exile literature. His Pacifische Presse, Pacific Press in Los Angeles, published 12 titles, including Thomas Mann, Werfel, and lots of famous names. But of course, it was a commercial failure. Mr. Gottlieb put a good deal to love and knowledge of music and established himself as a dealer in rare music the first such specialist in this country. So by 1948, it had become impossible to tell the real booksellers from the soon-to-be booksellers. They had all become pros. 
They all eagerly and effectively collaborated in the establishment of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. They joined the geographic societies and vitrify groups and soon became part of the landscape. The influence of these new booksellers was also felt in the specialties they brought with them. Medieval manuscripts and miniatures, early continental printed books, children's books, fine illustrated books of all periods, art books, fine bindings, history of medicine and science, physiography, scholarly books in the humanities, or more narrowly specialized fields such as neo-Latin authors, medieval and Renaissance scholarship, and early music. Of course, many of these specialties were already practiced here, but certainly the new arrivals added quality, innovation, and quantity. It should also be noted that this was a period when American academic libraries began to develop, develop strong appetites for most of these fields, and the new crop of sophisticated librarians and collectors now found readily, a readily accessible group of booksellers able to supply their needs and, when called upon, to give advice. The books they wanted were no longer out of reach somewhere in Europe or confined to the shelves of a few rather intimidating or seemingly intimidating establishments. And the expert dealers, once previously visited in Munich, Frankfurt, Vienna, or Berlin, were now in mid-Manhattan or Los Angeles. And European haute cuisine lunches and Rafa torte were replaced, alas, by the ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> I can best make the point by injecting a slightly off-color story. It was a matter of common knowledge that during World War II, American GIs in Europe were much drawn to the English and continental ladies, an abstraction which I'm happy to say was reciprocated, but I promised no autobiography. One GI, returning home after his discharge, was asked by his somewhat suspicious fiancée, tell me, he said, what did these European girls have that we don't have? Nothing, he answered, but they had it over there. Irresistibly to Europe, now found it over here. Another and very striking effect of this displacement, displacement of large quantities of antiquarian books to the United States, of this redistribution of sources, made itself felt after Europe and Japan recovered from the destruction of World War II. The century-old one-way flow of books from Europe to America began to be reversed. European libraries and bibliophiles could no longer depend solely on their local suppliers. They had to turn to the United States. The trend, though not entirely reversed, was significantly altered. I think the first straw in the wind of this newfound uh, European financial clout <coughs> was, was at the Wilmerding sale in New York in 1950-1951. The newly prosperous libraries of Europe, now able to repatriate their national treasures, had to buy them here. Japanese collectors and libraries in search of incunabula, early continental books and scholarly reference books, 
had to include America in their itineraries. The whole antiquarian book trade became realigned, and as a result, it is now a much healthier and less lopsided trade. In all this, the continental immigrants played a key role. When we speak of influence, our thoughts must naturally turn to catalogs, but we must bear in mind that taken all by itself, the number of catalogs issued by a dealer is not a true indicator of that dealer's standing, size of stock, knowledge, or business activity. The output varies greatly. Chatsky, for instance, uh, published hardly any catalogs at all. Uh, my father published only one or two in New York, and when he moved to California, none. Others had published a constant stream. Zalos had arrived at 410, or is it 411? Uh, perhaps the study of these catalogs is far too big a subject for me to cover here. I will confine myself to saying that by and large they did set a new standard of excellence. Perhaps they may on occasion be a little ponderous, a bit too much on the we must educate the public side, and that is what I meant by tutorization. But I, for one, would, would rather have a bit too much description than too little, and I am myself guilty of this we must educate the public technique. It was an approach that all the emigres brought with them. The real booksellers had already practiced it with great success. Their soon-to-be colleagues were, as we have seen, ideally suited by temperament and education to follow this pattern, and vastly, I might add, improve on it. One of the questions I asked my respondents was whether their business would be continued after them. I found that only a handful will be continued, and only three, possibly four, were or will be continued by members of the family. But do not weep. I'm often told, ad nauseam, that in our trade, they don't make them like they used to, or the good ones are all gone. That's utter nonsense, and that was said by one old bookseller in Alexandria to his colleague in the year 275 BC. <laughs> if anything, I would say that they make them much better now than they used to, and we should be very pleased to see a surprising number of young and no longer quite so young colleagues who are every bit as erudite and as sophisticated as this older generation, if not more so. That may be due to the fact that as the obvious great books, you know, the ones that are so easy to describe, as these disappear from the market, the less obvious ones have to get more attention, and they demand much more original research. You can't just copy printing and the mind of man. As Mr. Breslauer remarked to me one day, our books seem to get worse all the time, but our descriptions get better and better. <laughs> It is precisely they, these, this new generation of booksellers, who are the real heirs of the continental immigrants. And I dare say that if we now have in this country 
a far larger proportion of learned, literate, and cosmopolitan booksellers than ever before. It is because a generation ago, the gentle invaders have set the example and prepared the ground. Let me say a quick word about Canada. I said earlier that the impact of the refugee booksellers was greatest here in the US because so many of the booksellers came here. But if we apply a broader hemispheric scale, that statement has to be modified. Only one refugee came to, ca to Canada before my 1948 deadline. Bernard Amtmann, who after leaving his native Vienna, went to France, served in the French army, then in the French underground, and eventually made it to Montreal in 1947. He had no experience as a bookseller, but once in Canada, he started an antiquarian bookshop. He not only started the antiquarian bookshop, he single-handedly started the antiquarian book trade in Canada. And that, I think, was more than just having an impact. That was a big bang. An analogous situation, by the way, where only one or two booksellers either started or revitalized the antiquarian book trade was in Argentina and Brazil. In closing, just once, let me read to you the names of all these people, these gentle invaders, in alphabetical order. Ilse and Frederick Burnett, Albrecht Buschke, Marguerite and Richard Goldschmidt, Ernest Gottlieb, Ludwig Gottschalk and Paul Gottschalk, Gerda and William Heinemann, Thomas Heller, Emil Hirsch, Walter Johnson, Hanni and Hans Diekraut, Kurt Merlander, Emil Offenbacher, Marianne and Albert Hiebig, Otto Ranschburg, Edith and Herbert Reichner, Mary Rosenberg, Erwin Rosenthal, Marianne and William Zalo, William Schaaf, Walter Schatzky, Kurt Schwartz, and Helmut Wallach. If applause is due, it is due to them, not to me.
Miriam Foote, Lottie Hellinger, who is Dutch, and Professor Roger Reynolds, who is Canadian. So the International House continues to our great prophet. There is a reception immediately to follow, and I hope you will join our speaker, which is Marianne Malkin, last year's speaker, and uh, yourselves for a glass of champagne in conversation. If those who are sitting in these four chairs would vacate before anybody else does so we can pull the chair so you can get out of here, that would be useful. So that you don't find yourself with a glass of champagne in one hand and, if I may put it this way, a naked windchip in the other. When you sign the guest book for this occasion in the lounge, you will be given a copy of the Winship Lecture in an envelope, and if you will put your name on it, you may then give it right back to the person in charge of the guest book, who will then give it back to you on request when you're leaving the room. So, will you all please go down to room 523.